Welcome to the Unstoppable Coach Podcast. I'm Millette Jones, and every weekday I chat with today's most successful coaches, and we learn their secrets to building a thriving coaching business. Are you ready to be unstoppable? Let's go. Thanks for joining the Unstoppable Coach Podcast, where inspiration and action come together. I'm Millette Jones, and today's guest is Corey Poirier. Corey has been compared to icons of their craft, like Bruce Lee, Anthony Robbins, and Napoleon Hill on multiple occasions. Yet, Corey's own uniqueness and ability to share the exclusive insight that he's gained during interviews with over 4,000 of the world's top leaders will make your next meeting or event the one everyone talks about. Corey, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm super stoked and excited to be here. Well, normally I interview coaches and while you do a little bit of coaching, your specialty is really speaking and teaching people how to speak. And like I just read in the bio, you've had over 4,000 interviews with top leaders. So you are a professional speaker. So I would love to start out with just a little bit about your background, how you got into speaking and tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to do that. And so I guess in terms of where it all started, I kind of pivot this, you know, to this point, always as to how it the journey began. And when I say this, I'll preface or add in that I actually think that I was probably meant to eventually get into speaking anyway, because my mother and my grandmother, and now my girlfriend, they are all talkers. I'll use it. <laughs> and, and I'm not and I'm not going to try to absolve myself and say I'm not the same. So I, I think I was sort of maybe in some ways meant to go in that direction. But the part that maybe surprises some people is I certainly wasn't comfortable doing it and I certainly wasn't skilled doing it when I began. And so when I say that, I bring this up because I think a lot of people feel and and maybe, you know, even people that are working with people one on one uh, still have that same thought process that speaking is only for people that are naturally comfortable on stage. And so for me, I was absolutely terrified of speaking in public when I was young. put a little point on it or a period on it. I actually, uh, my first interview on the radio, which was just me, of course, and the interviewer, I was actually covered in sweat, even though nobody could see me, because I was that terrified just of speaking on the on the radio, which really, I wasn't speaking to anybody directly, nobody could see my face, and I was still terrified. So my first talk I ever delivered, I, to this day, I still don't know what I said. I didn't prepare it. I didn't know you were even supposed to. It was a talk on the difficulties young entrepreneurs face. And afterward, I asked people what I had said that really spoke to them because I was trying to find out what I actually said. And people were saying, I don't know but what you were talking about, but you were some passionate about it. So I'm really excited to take on the world. And so there was something there. But like I said, it, it really showed me that I certainly wasn't built or born to be a speaker. So that's only important because I think anybody can learn it and learn the craft. And it's not something you have to start with. But in terms of where that journey took me or where it sort of went from there and how it began, I guess it started really back in 2002. I had been invited by an actor in a play I put together to try stand-up comedy. And uh, it was a workshop at a university. I was absolutely terrified. I uh, went to the workshop. It was, what we really learned during that workshop was here's how you adjust the mic stand. And the comic who put it on loved um, Steve Martin. So he said Steve Martin ruled. And he, then he went to back that up 
for hours, basically. So the <laughs> training was basically why he felt Steve Martin ruled and here's how you adjust the mic stand. And a lot of people listening will know the number one fear in the world above death is public speaking for the average person. And mm. so comedy is levels above that. So you might say, well, why wouldn't it be number one? And I believe the reason is because so few people ever try it, they don't even try to measure it. You know, it's, it's mm. so minute. They don't even add it as number one because there's not enough people doing it. So comedy is not for the faint of heart. But I, I said, you know what? If you're going to face a fear, you got to face it head on. So I went through this workshop. That's all we were taught, even though it's, a, it's such a big fear to overcome. And the third week is the week I was most excited about because we were told we were going to go watch people entertain us. It's kind of like a clinic. And you're sitting uh, in front of the stage watching people. I, the problem with, with that was uh, we only discovered about five minutes of showtime that we were indeed the entertainers. Oh, no. Yeah. So he kept that from us. He basically you know, led us to believe we were going to watch other performers. And then we said, you said we we're going to watch other entertainers. And he said, yeah, when Corey's doing some comedy, Bill's going to watch. And when Bill's doing comedy, Corey's going to watch. Oh my so, gosh. So yeah, so five minutes of showtime that was dropped on us. I went to the bathroom, this story I've shared many times, but I went to the bathroom and I looked for the exit window to try to sneak out. There was no <laughs> exit window. I came back out, 15 people had went through that workshop, paid for the workshop, spent the time in the workshop, planned to do stand-up, and a lot of them came from some sort of performance background, and eight of the 15 walked out the front door. So oh my gosh. More than 50% left of the people that actually signed up to do this. Uh, mm. So that tells you how high of a fear level it is. And, and in fairness to those people, we didn't have any time to prepare any material. So they were you know, going to the number one fear, but also going, going at it with no material. So about eight, uh, eight ten. Uh, we're still debating who's going to go up first. And finally, I said, you know what? I went to Toastmasters one time. They taught me that you're supposed to go up first rather than watch the other people fail or get, you know, flustered or what have you. So I jumped on the stage, grabbed the mic, launched into my two first jokes, only to discover that the mic wasn't turned on. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so, so basically, I bombed. Uh, you know, I, I told the jokes, nobody laughed, and I didn't realize the mic wasn't turned on. And then the guy that put us into this mess called me over, hit me in the back of the head and said, you idiot, you haven't turned the mic on yet. So we turned the mic on. I'd love to tell you that I then knocked it out of the park, but I, I proceeded to bomb again. The jokes, basically, I don't think there were any more laugh than there was when the mic wasn't on. Uh, <laughs> I went back and performed over and over again. And so to make this whole long story very short from here, Basically, what happened was I found out and discovered I liked certain parts of its uh, comedy and that there were tastes of my passion in it, but there were elements I really didn't like. And I said, there's got to be something that has the elements I like and, and not as many of the ones I don't like. And then I essentially came up across this world of speaking, realized people were getting paid to speak. And that was when I made the transition from basically performing stand-up on a pretty regular basis to performing stand-up a little less and, and actually transitioning into uh, speaking for audiences on a regular basis. So that's a long story, but how I get into speaking was really a weird route through failing a bunch of times, both speaking and then at stand-up comedy, and eventually realizing that my calling was probably uh, somewhere in the middle of all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would love to, to talk about that a little bit more, because I think that that's something that a lot of people face. They'll get started with something there'll be a little part of it that they enjoy, but there's more of it that they don't. But instead of really digging in and figuring out where to shift, where to pivot, they'll just walk away from it all. So what do you think it was that, I mean, now, honestly, I probably would have been one of the people that left and didn't even do it 
But for you to have gotten up there, done the routine, not had the mic on, gone back, done it again, no laughs, and then you went back and did more stand-up and you started doing that over, first of all, what, what do you think that was that caused you to say, this was terrible, but I'm going to go do it again? You know, I, I, I really believe that a small part of me, and, and I'm not going to say, you know, it was the biggest part of me, but a small part of me wanted the challenge. I, I actually embraced the challenge. Of, there's, I really believe that I, I was never born, by the way, as a naturally funny person. I believe people like Jim Carrey, even though they've worked on their craft, they also are naturally funny. I wasn't that guy. So I had to sort of try to write funny. And I really believe that I had it in me because I was storytelling in rooms with friends. I was I could be the life of the party and tell the story that people are sharing my story. I'd hear them sharing it. So, And my grandfather was an amazing joke teller, storyteller. And so I said, there's something here. It's just that I haven't figured out how to bring that onto the stage properly because you telling people telling jokes in front of their friends who know them and know the people they're talking about in the joke, right. that doesn't work on the stage. And not only that, I mean, I took a, a 10, well, probably about an eight minute what I thought was, well, an eight-minute story about my cousin's stag party onto the stage, and it bombed horribly. And I had to, I kept chipping away at it until eventually I found one joke that killed every time, but the joke was less than a minute out of that whole eight-minute bit that would actually work on the stage. So I think I, I actually sort of, two things happened. One, um, because I didn't sort of die on the stage that night, because we equated to, oh, I'm dying on the stage. They even call it that. And so I equated it to, okay, well, that means you're not going to survive. So I had this weird, I'm sure, thing in my you know, head saying I could literally die up here. And so the fact that I didn't die kind of sh- said to me, you know what, maybe sometimes our fears, as they say, the, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Maybe it's just the fear of the unknown. And now that I've seen what the unknown is, the worst that can possibly happen is I bomb and I don't get any laughs. Um, I mean, and you could add in getting heckled because I got heckled on my second night, but, (laughs) but you know, that's the worst that can happen. And I survived it. So I think the first part that happened is because I saw that I actually survived it. And, and when we say, what's the worst that can happen and you write it down and to see that actually was the worst that could happen. And that was one side. And then the second side was because I survived it. Now the new thing was I wanted to prove my, to myself that I could get at least one joke out that got laughs. I just really needed to get some laughs to be able to say, you know what, I'm not, even if I'm not meant for this, I'm not horrible at it, or I'm not, I, I didn't fail completely forever. Because as they, to me, you know, the only failure is either not trying at all, or getting on the horse falling off and then running away. So I was mm-hmm. like, you know what, I got to get back on this horse. And so what happened was, that, then I was basically chasing that one laugh. And I'd love to again tell you that on the second show or the third show, I got the laugh, but it took longer than that. So what happened is by the time I finally got the first laugh, I actually was digging stand-up comedy. Again, it wasn't my full calling. It wasn't my full passion, but I liked enough about it. And I liked the community of people. And I liked going on this journey with other people that were brand new at it. I liked enough of it to keep me going back. So Mm -hmm. I really believe I just kind of, it was a happy accident (laughs) that I kept chasing that laugh until eventually... It wasn't about the laugh anymore. It was about who I was becoming in the process. And then, of course, then I started to build up and get more laughs. And by the time I, quote, unquote, went on hiatus, I'll call it that because I never officially said I'm done. Uh, that was nine years later, 700 shows. And I, w- I was performing. I had a, a show that I was producing. And I, was, I could perform. wasn't always, but I could perform a 45-minute set with almost consistent laughs from oh, wow. 
going weeks and weeks and weeks without being able to get one laugh at one joke. But what I want people to take from that is what you said, nine years. So you worked at this and you crafted this for almost a decade. So the people that think that, that things like this, Corey went from being heckled to people laughing for 45 minutes straight, it wasn't a six-month journey. It was a, a year upon year upon year journey of trying different things and seeing what worked and throwing things out and doing a little more of this. I mean, I, I love that story. I think that's, that's really inspirational that you were able to find enough in something that was kind of uncomfortable that you really enjoyed to stick with it for almost a decade to figure out how to master it. Well, on the other side, too, is that if I hadn't done that, then my true passion would never have happened. I mean, it's it's really likely that I never would have gotten to speaking had I never jumped on a stand-up stage. And, and just to kind of put a, a, I'll say an exclamation point on it, these days when I'm performing stand-up, it's only for a big show or something that I've said, I want I want to do this. this is, so for example, last year, my girlfriend had never seen me perform. And so last year we were in Toronto, in, in Canada, and we were at, uh, I got an opportunity, I was invited to perform at Second City, which, you know, Second City is kind of like one of the, the big creme de la cremes of the stand-up world. So, you know, Second City would be the one that produced most of the Saturday Night Live original people like the Dan Aykroyd, Steve Martins, what have you, mm -hmm. uh, Mike Myers. And so I had a chance to perform on that stage. So, of course, I took that. And so I went, so this is a, a comparison. So I went to that show. And I what I did was I went back to the well. So some material that I'd used that had worked before. And I decided, you know, this is the easy, easiest way to do it because I don't want to sit down for one show and prepare hour after hour. So mm -hmm. I took the shortcut and I said, I just, my bigger thing is I want to perform on that stage. So I did that. A girlfriend came with me. She recorded it. And for the most part, it went over really well. And that was in front of as well, Second City students that were also there too, which was really kind of a big, cool moment for me. But I, just uh, two weeks ago, I did another come out of hiatus moment and I performed in uh, California at a, a, a show that was that's operated uh, by the improv so the you know the night at the improv big mm -hmm. show and uh and i i basically did the same shortcut used the same material and it, it basically it didn't bomb but it came close to bombing like it was silence for some of the jokes um then i got them around for another few jokes then lost them but my point is is that it was the same material same energy everything the same and, and, it, and it bombed. So you'll go into your point that it, it took years, you know, so what I believe is the 10,000 hour rule was in place for me. And it took those hours to get to that point. But at the same time, there's also, I think, a lesson that, you know, you can never become complacent. And it doesn't mean that you've mastered it just because you've gotten to a point where um, you you get it, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, absolutely. So you were getting into this and, and over these years, of you getting into stand-up and really perfecting some of the routines, I'm assuming that you were also sort of on that path of, of determining, you know, some of this I really like and some of it maybe not as much. If you can, talk a little bit about that, that pivot from going from being on stage doing comedy to really getting into being a speaker. How did that come about for you? So... I guess where it started, I always see this as kind of that, that moment where the light bulb went on, is that I was actually, I was watching a video uh, with Tony Robbins in it. And I remembered that 
you know, I'd seen these infomercials by Tony Robbins years ago, which is kind of funny because I had other people that said, you mean this TV show we used to have, <laughs> which is actually just, it was just him paying for ad time, but people <laughs> thought it was a TV show. So to me, that means he did a good job with them. But, right. uh, but yeah, so I, I seen Tony Robbins again after seeing years ago, I'd, I'd seen his infomercials, of course, like most people. And the years later, I saw this uh, video of him speaking. And then I, somebody reminded me about his personal power program. And so all of a sudden I started doing a little tiny bit of research on uh, Tony Robbins and then something, I don't know what I found that told me it, but something I found showed me that he was actually getting paid as a speaker. And I know that might sound naive, like why wouldn't you think he was? But my thought was, okay, he's speaking on stages to be an authority, but he's where his only money that he's making is from selling his personal power programs. So I thought he was actually getting paid for his programs that he mm -hmm. was selling because he was speaking, but I didn't realize he was also getting paid to speak. And that's when a light bulb went on, not because it was about money, because I truly believe that if you're chasing a passion because it pays well, then it's probably not your true passion. You know, if you, if you feel you have to get paid to do it, then you're doing the wrong thing. But that said, I thought if I want to do, if I want to, do something that I can impact people's lives and then continue to do it more than not do it. If it pays, that's also a benefit, you know, mm -hmm. because you could go into knitting and stuff like that, which you may have to be really creative to figure out how you're going to get paid to do it. But with speaking, if it's something that already you get paid to do and it's a passion, then I saw that as a big double win. Not only that, because I was already performing standup. And by this point I was already teaching a college course as well in sales. I just saw it as, okay, well, this is an opportunity to do really what I'm already doing and I'm doing for free uh, with the comedy and tr turn it into something that actually could pay potentially pay the bills. Not that I'll only do it if it does, but potentially pay the bills. And it has all the things that I like. So in terms of, you know, you said, when, how did that transition came about? It really came out from me seeing Tony Robbins on a video that somebody had sent me a link or something, or it might've been uh, a YouTube video. And then essentially what happened was I did a bit of research because I loved watching what he did on stage and said, this is like my stand-up, except for there's little potential for hecklers. There's probably no alcohol <laughs> and, and you could go down the list. And then all of a sudden, and not only that, that you can, if you, if you can do, if you can deliver a joke on a comedy stage, it's a heck of a lot easier to do it in the corporate room. And mm -hmm. I was, even could see that with what, when Tony was getting laughs. So I said, this has all the things I like. And then, like I said, I did some research and saw that he was actually doing this for a living. You know, it was, it was a, paying the bills along with the products and everything else. And then it, I realized that I could influence people. I could impact people in a positive way. And I just started basically going down the list in my head of all the things that this speaking thing could do for me. And then at that point, it was sort of a no-brainer that I want to at least start exploring this. Well, I know that a lot of the coaches that I talk to, especially newer coaches, they may come into coaching with an idea of maybe not being 100% sure of who their ideal client is, but just knowing you know, I really want to help people in transition, or I really want to help people that are introverts like me, you know, they'll sort of pick sort of a topic that they want to work with. And then that's the person that they go after. Now, what did you do when you first got started speaking? Because obviously, my mind says, okay, well, he's going to speak about doing stand up comedy. Okay, that's not going to work really well. So how did you come up with what you wanted to speak about and what you wanted to be a speaker on? So that's such a great point. And, and don't let me uh, forget, Millette, to tell you about why I think um, speaking is such a great benefit to a coach. But I'll, I'll remind me, just don't let me forget that. Okay. Um, but in terms of the what to speak on, and even I can go one step further and, and say picking sort of that avatar client, if you will, when I started, so that ideal target audience, 
how it started for me, I was, I will say I had one little bit of luck working in my favor or whatever we want to, I mean, obviously I made the choices to get to that point. So technically it wasn't luck, but you know what I mean? Timing, everything sort of worked out well in one respect, but in the other flip respect, I will tell you a lot of people think speaking is a lot easier than it is, especially Mm -hmm. the business side. You know, for a lot of people, they, they can get, if they had the gigs given to them and just here's your gig, a lot of people that are comfortable um, in front of an audience could deliver. But the bigger challenge is people don't realize it's a speaking business. It's not just speaking on the stage. There's more to it than that. And I didn't know that either when I started. So getting clients is, is a big part of that, of course. It's probably the most important part. But um, in terms of how I sort of got started and then also that sort of leg up or luck that I said I had was that I was working in a corporate career already. So when I mentioned I was performing stand-up, the other side of my life is I was in the, the easiest way to explain it is the office equipment industry is what they would call it. So I was selling photocopiers uh, from business to business. So door to door, basically. Uh, not for the faint of heart. So if anybody's listening to this, don't leave coaching to go sell photocopiers. That's the <laughs> big advice I'll give you. I did well in the industry. I spent 10 years in it. Um, and it's not an industry to do well in. But And the reason I even left it, because I did like some of it, was that the writing was on the wall. You could see that the pricing was going down lower and lower. And when you go from selling a machine for eighty thousand uh, dollars that does color for the client, and then they, ha- you know, that the cost is forty cents plus they have to pay for the toner for each service, you know, each service click they do, to the point where then you're selling stuff for seven thousand dollars and two cents with toner mm-hmm. included. It's pretty easy to see that that's not really a good place to invest your career. So right. ten years, I watched the spiral go down as the industry changed. Um, so how that ties into everything else is that I was, because I was in that industry, it made it a lot easier for me to approach clients because I already had a relationship with at least enough clients to reach out to people and say, Hey, you know, and and I even did it using my days off my holidays. So I didn't leave my job to do it. So I basically was able to use my vacation days and that, but I was able to figure out which clients I could approach about it Mm -hmm. and, and say, you know what, um, I'm doing this on the side because this has been, you know, I've always wanted to impact people. Um, I've been in sales for 10 years. So I started out as a sales trainer. So going back to your point about content, I started in sales. That's how I was my door in, if you will. And I started teaching at a local college in sales. And it took me a year to sell them, which I always say is appropriate. I had to sell them on teaching a sales course. Um, but the, the, they hadn't done one before. So I was the first sales course they had done. And so I was teaching that at their college and that added credibility immediately. And then I had clients that were coming through the program, like through the training at the college, who would reach out to the college and say, you know, we can't send 30 of our employees. Is it possible to bring him in? Mm -hmm. And so that started happening. And at the same time, I was able to approach clients I had in the office equipment industry and say, here's what I'm doing now. And I would love to tell you that that's, you know, that started everything and it just continued. But what ha- what that did do is it gave me enough to at least say, now I'm doing this part-time. It didn't you know, launch it overnight. It didn't uh, really turn into enough of a business to sustain itself. And those early clients, truthfully, uh, you know, I remember one of the, the, the first talk I ever did with any payment involved was a, a, for a gym that I worked out at and I kind of pitched them and, and they brought me in. But the deal was they gave me three gym memberships, 90-day gym memberships, that I could give away to clients. That was my payment. Uh, and then that same client, the highest pay I ever got from them when I finally had to move on was $350. Mm. So when people think speaking, I'm going to jump in and, and you know, it's going to, I'm going to be getting $5,000 talks in a month. 
you know what, it, it may happen, but you're probably going to have to have some major luck happen, like, you know, a, a video go viral or something happen, or your book just come out with a major publisher for that to happen. But for me, like I said, the journey started with, I had some clients I could approach. I, I, I convinced the community college, let me teach there. And then I started getting clients through there. And then what happened from there is I started using some creative approaches to find other clients. So as an example, I put together an evaluation form that on the form, it had a key question that said, is there do you know of someone else who could benefit from a similar presentation? And then I would be able to collect those. And then all of a sudden I'd have five people saying, reach out to me afterwards and I'll connect you with Bill. I'm sure his team could use this. So that was one of the things I did to start the process. And then the other thing was word of mouth started as well because of the other things I was doing. So the, the few clients I was working with, even the one paying me in gym memberships, this guy sent me a, a, a letter saying, we've had many presenters over the last 24 years, but none we've enjoyed more than you. We need you for all our future sales training which almost knocked me off my chair because here I am in my first year and I'm only working for gym memberships. And I have a guy who's running, uh, I think it was nine locations and has had probably 10 presenters a year for 24 years and mm. saying that I'm the best he's ever seen. So it told me, you know what, that was a little moment of, you know what, maybe I'm onto the right thing here. And then it just started a slow, and I'm not going to say it was big, but a slow momentum from there uh, as to how the client started coming in. And that was basically, again, word of mouth and me taking some action with that evaluation form and then a little bit of me reaching out as well. Yeah. One thing that I want to talk about just a little bit, you had been in sales, so you probably felt it was a, a fairly comfortable transition to start to speak about sales and to do sales trainings. And I think that a lot of people kind of get in their head about feeling like an imposter or the imposter syndrome coming up. I'd like to know kind of your opinion about that as it relates to maybe stepping into something that you really don't have a whole lot of experience in. Like when people try to go out and present on topics that maybe they're a little bit not quite as comfortable speaking on or they don't have quite as much education. You know, do you think that's sort of like where that imposter syndrome comes up or did you ever experience that at all when you got started? So a great question. And what I will say to that is I started in sales because I felt, and this is just my opinion. And so this is, it's great that you mentioned imposter syndrome. And so what I will say, and this is, I want this to be a double-edged thing because I don't want to discourage anybody who let's say wants to get into coaching on insert name here, maybe a weird example, maybe they want to coach musicians mm -hmm. and, and, you know, maybe they've always loved music and maybe they managed a couple bands, but they never played music. Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe they've, they haven't done what they feel is enough to, te to talk on that. I don't want to discourage that person because I think if you have a passion for it and you have a base knowledge, that's probably enough. But the caveat, so the extra I'll add going back to your question, is that the sales part felt comfortable for me because I didn't feel comfortable jumping in to something that I was simply liked a lot, but didn't right. have the background in. And, and this is, it was out of fear. So I'd love to tell you it was because, um, you know, I, I had this great noble cause and didn't want to, you know, teach on like talk on something that um, I didn't want to, let's say I didn't want to fool people or what have you. It wasn't anything to do with that. It was that I recognized that whenever I would veer off from sales early on and talk on something that I really didn't have any business talking on, let's say HR, which mm -hmm. I didn't have, you know, HR governance or something crazy like that, that wasn't my niche. Then what would happen was people would ask me questions and I would look like a fool when I was answering the questions, because they, they could tell they had more knowledge than I did on the subject. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, there's a, um, th there's this comic, his name is Jerry D. And he was, I remember one time I watched his comedy and he talked about how he taught, 
at school and he was a substitute teacher. And the challenge with substitute teaching is you can't be knowledgeable in everything, but you're still being asked to teach at those grades. So what he said is he said, I didn't have to know everything. I just had to be a chapter ahead of them. Mm. And and so what, what was interesting to me is I recently read uh, Russell Brunson's book, Expert Secrets, and he said the same thing. He said, people are worried about teaching on a certain subject, but you really just have to be one step ahead of the people you're teaching. So the first, you know, answer the question of the imposter syndrome, I think as long as you're, you have enough of a base knowledge, that's the key thing that you can get ahead of and stay ahead of the people you're teaching. I think that's one thing, mm-hmm. but I, I'm not a big fan of promoting yourself to teach something that you really aren't experienced in. So to go back to my point about the sales, I did it more out of, I guess, selfishness of not wanting to look foolish uh, by not being able to answer questions. And then, but I'll answer the question further, but how does a person make that transition? Because I I don't teach on sales now at all, uh, and which I, you know, quite, quite comfortably do, obviously. But the reason I don't is because I made a judgment call and decision that it wasn't my passion. And the reason had nothing to do with really the sales profession. It had everything to do with the fact that in sales, there's a high turnover. And salespeople, and I'm saying this as a salesperson my entire life, by nature, and I'm generalizing here, but a lot of salespeople feel they already know it all. And I've been in the rooms with other salespeople when we had trainers come in and us going, what's he going to teach us? Right. And and the person had to actually say, I've made this much money. Or like when I remember this guy came in and he had sold this photocopier deal for $420,000 personally, sorry, his personal income from the deal. It was like uh-huh. a big deal in like five years in the industry and he sold it was, I think, Wells Fargo. And so he opened with that and then all of a sudden we all listened to him intently. But other than that, if, other than somebody that could prove that they had done more than us, then we were just like, yeah, whatever. And mm-hmm. so I had, there was a cynicism. There was the, like I said, the high turnover. And so what I did do is transition from training salespeople through companies to actually running public seminars where I'd bring in salespeople. Because then I at least felt those people, I could be on their journey with them, even if they went from company to company and help them grow as a salesperson. But mm-hmm. it just didn't feel like my calling, if you will. So uh, this goes to the, how do you make the transition? And so what I did was, while I was doing the sales training, I started asking myself, what else that I could be passionate about that, you know, that relates to sales, that I have a bit of a base knowledge because of my time in sales, could I make the transition from? And so my very first real transition was from sales to customer service. Mm-hmm. And so I recognized that I've been served by, you know, by suppliers and, and companies forever. So I have the, like all of us, the observational side. Um, I really watched whenever I would, a wow would be delivered. I even had made notes about wows and put them in my sales training. So that related to customer service. And then I, we figured out the numbers one time. And during my sales career, and this does not include uh, warm calls, hot calls, leads, all that, I had done over 10,000 cold calls. So mm. you learn a lot about customer service. Even right. by the way somebody treats you when you go in there, like you could be a potential customer for them, but they're just seeing you as a salesperson. So I remember I moved to a, a new city and I needed car insurance uh, within the next month. And I went into this car insurance place and I first wanted to talk to them about their office equipment needs. And then I was going to ask them about car insurance. And she was so rude to me. I just said in my head, you know what? You just lost the sale. And I went to another person and bought my uh, car insurance and they ended up buying equipment from me. But even if they hadn't, that first person, because of the way they treated me as a potential customer, simply because they saw me as a salesperson, you know, that's, that's part of customer service. So I recognized that I, I had enough of a base knowledge that I could build on it. And so I slowly but surely made the transition into customer service. And then eventually um, what happened was I had been reading book after book. I, I never read a book till I was 27, read my first book, How to Win Friends and Influence People turned me on to books. 
I started reading Success Magazine, listened to CDs, DVDs, uh, you know, watched trainings. I read books uh, on professional and personal development. And then eventually I had enough of a base knowledge in that to make my final transition, which was really into what I spent most of my time speaking on today, which is the timeless traits or timeless secrets of influential leaders. And what happened was how that triggered is I read the book by, Dale, uh, by Napoleon Hill, um, mm -hmm. Think and Grow Rich. And I got sort of hooked on the idea of him sharing these stories of all these interviews he had done. And mm -hmm. I was doing interviews myself at the time. And then that's where this number of 4,000 interviews started basically kicking in was that I really started getting psyched about interviewing people, learning what they figured out and that most of us didn't know yet and sharing that with everybody. So that was a long answer, but I think it explains how I made the transitions from sales to customer service to personal professional development to tying it all together and what are the timeless secrets of each of those categories. And so what I would say for that person saying, okay, well, am I an imposter? Am I okay to speak on this or coach on this or what have you? First of all, coaching is a bit different because you know a lot of good coaches do a lot of listening. And so you, you're more coaching the person rather than the, the, maybe the activity. And I'm not saying that's always the case, but I'm saying um, as a coach, you can actually go into it and you could be an amazing coach, but you might not be the top salesperson in the country, but you might be coaching a top salesperson because you have enough of a, you know, they have this up inside of them and you're actually listening and bringing it out of them and helping guide them and giving them strategy. And the strategy doesn't mean you're telling them how to sell. So right. I understand that you can be an amazing coach without actually being in a certain industry. But I think if you're going to go into a specific industry, like for example, uh, let's say uh, coaching high performance athletes, then mm -hmm. you should have some base knowledge, whether you've interviewed high performance athletes for years, whether you've spent time with them, whether you were an Olympic athlete yourself, you should have something that ties you into that industry. And that's what I always felt is I always had to have some base knowledge I could build upon. And then I was building on that base knowledge before getting ready to launch fully into that area. So that way I would be ahead of at least most of the people that I'd be coaching or speaking to. Let's move the conversation a little bit to talking about how can coaches get started speaking? And like you said, to remind you of, let's first talk about what is the benefit of coaches getting into speaking as part of their services, as part of their offerings? Yeah. So, and you know, when I mentioned even a minute ago, um, you know, when coaching, I, I really look at my speaking program as a, as a coaching program mm -hmm. because it's, there's two sides. So there's one side, which is me, um, the program itself, which is membership based, it's online, all those kind of things. But the flip side is because of the nature of speaking and it being one of those intimate type industries, what happens is I end up coaching a lot of the time one-on-one -on -one anyway, the, the people that are in a program. So right. when I say coaching one-on-one, -on -one, I don't mean like formalized coaching one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, if they reach out and say, hey, can we schedule a call for a half hour? I'm that type of person that I have a hard time saying no. So I usually end up coaching them anyway. And they come to me with questions regularly. Um, I have my assistant helps me with it because she understands the industry really well. But really, they're coming and saying, here's the situation I have. I'm being asked to speak at this, but they want me to do this. What do you think? So um, I guess you could even maybe say guiding as much as coaching. Mm -hmm. but, um, but in terms of why bother, you know, why should a coach consider the option of speaking? I'll, I'll say it from the point of view, I'm in a kind of a unique situation in that I've never fully transitioned and, and went into the coaching route 100%. But had I, I, I can tell I can sort of go down the list uh, each pretty much like in the last month, the opportunities I've turned away for coaching. 
And, right. and right, even from early on, when I when I was struggling as a speaker, meaning I was getting those gym memberships, I was having people from the same company that was paying me in gym memberships. I was having their employees come and saying, "Can you coach me? Can you coach me? Can you coach me?" Like they were willing to invest in me, even before, like even before I was, in my opinion, really making it as a speaker. <laughs> Mm-hmm. They're wanting me to coach them. And so the reason that there's a bunch of reasons, but obviously the biggest one is there's a pretty inherent uh, expertise and credibility that's built in when you get on a stage in front of people. And there's a few reasons. One, it's obviously because you're doing that number one fear. So people see you as, oh my, like, wow, I wish I could do that. So then there's this built in uh, credibility of this person's doing something that I struggle to do. Um, there's top CEOs and leaders that can't get on a stage and speak. And so that's one of the things that happens. The second thing is when you're speaking in front of a room, there's that community authority. So, you know, you have 100 people, 1,000 people, whatever the number, sitting there going, oh, this person knows what they're talking about. But they see other people shaking their head. And so mm-hmm. it's that group uh, proof of concept that this person knows what they're talking about. So what happens is whenever I get off the stage or on those evaluation forms or in emails afterwards, I have people reaching out to me saying, what do you charge for coaching? So if you think about why should a coach get into speaking, if you can go, and especially, by the way, because I don't, I, I actually openly say I'm not a coach and I still get the request. So can you imagine if you're there saying in your bio, it says, and, and Don is also a, a sought after coach. Mm-hmm. And then you say, insert in your talk, you know, when I was coaching this high performance CEO last week, mm-hmm. all of a sudden that, I mean, if you think of what you can do with that versus the person that's actually openly saying, I don't do this and they're still coming to them. <laughs> so there's so much potential because you're in a room of, let's say, whatever the number is, but let's say it was 100 people that are with an organization that love what you're talking about. Maybe the, the real estate would be example. Realist, realtors bring you together and they pay to have you there. And they're saying, you know, I'd love to learn more or uh, I believe in professional development, but this guy's only here for 45 minutes. How can I get more? Mm-hmm. So imagine the power of those same people. If you're saying to them, I can also coach you into high performance. So what I what I guess what I'm getting at is that it's a great source of generating leads and it's actually targeted leads. It's leads that in some cases that they paid for you to be there, or they paid a thousand dollars to attend your public seminar, you also know they're willing to invest. You know they're there spending their time, so they're probably willing to invest their time. So it's almost like you're you're target marketing the ideal client, positioning yourself as a speaker and having them come to you I mean, positioning yourself as an authority, having them come to you and saying, can you coach me? I mean, I don't know if you could lay out a better, you know, map for, uh, for bringing on coaching clients than clients that are willing to pay, they're willing to invest the time and they're coming to you. Right. So a couple of things that, that came to mind as you were going through that, that I wanted to ask about. The first thing is when you're speaking to a group, have you found in the past or now that when you go into a company that it's the company itself that will put some of their employees into a program or that the company wants more from you? Or is it the individuals that say for themselves, I want to move forward with this knowledge and this would really benefit me. So I'm going to approach this person myself. So it's actually a bit of both. It depends on the client that brings me in. And, and so I, I can give you an easy answer that explains that quite well, is if a corporate client brings me in, so this, you know, a company, let, and I'm just randomly throwing a name out, but let's say Starbucks um, or McDonald's or whoever it might be, if they're bringing you in, a lot of times they're wanting staff training. So they're wanting to, and, and you know, it could be for the right reasons. It could be because they want happier work environment. They want uh, engaged employees. 
So it doesn't mean because they're bringing you in to do that, that they're just looking to, you know, get more, grease more to the wheel, if you mm -hmm. will. But yeah, so when it's a company and they're investing in their staff and they're bringing you in and they're paying the whole bill, there's some staff that might not want to be there, but, uh, <laughs> but are being told you're, you're going. Um, and there's some that love to be there. It's kind of a mixed bag, if you will. But at the end of the day, it's the client that's wanting everybody to be better versions of themselves, meaning their staff, whether that's for the company, for the staff themselves, or for both. When it so the difference, though, would be an association, let's say. Mm -hmm. So, And I'm just throwing a name out, but the Association of Pipe Fitters of Minnesota, let's say. Um, in that case, it, it could be the members themselves that are paying for. So the members pay for a membership with the association. The association puts on an annual general meeting or an event. In that case, it's the members that are paying. Sometimes it might be the owner of the company, if it was, say, pipe fitters. Other times it might be the employees or they might be a one-person show. But for the most part, these are people that are passionate about what they do. And like I said, in most part as well, depending on the type of association, it's the person that's going there is also paying to be there. Mm -hmm. um, so again, realtor association. So in those groups, those are the situations where those people are pay, are they're actually paying for the training. They're investing the time and wanting to invest the time. They might be there to network with other people in the group and all that stuff, but they really want to be there. Mm -hmm. And so I would say if I were, you know, somebody as a coach also speaking and saying, who do I want to target? <laughs> Obviously, I would target the ones that want to be there and are paying to be there. So I would actually probably target certain associations. Uh, I will go and say one step further, another avenue, which I did for years and moved away from was uh, public seminars. And so when you run public seminars, and that's a whole other conversation, but what I will say is you do most of the work yourself, uh, or you could hire an event planner, but you do most of the work yourself, you do the promotion yourself. But the one benefit is you directly know how much the person's paying, you know, they want to be there for sure, because they paid to be there. Uh, you know who you approached, all those kind of things. So, you know, best case scenario, you run a public seminar, they pay to be there, and then they want your products, or they want you as a coach after the fact. The catch, like I said, is you have to know that you have to do the promotion. So there's kind of three tiers. One, you can speak to corporations, which pay well, uh, but you're there and maybe who knows the number, but a certain percentage of the people want to be there, a certain percentage don't. Associations where the right associations want to be there and they're paying to be there, or you could do public seminars, but you're doing the work to get them there. And then when people want to continue that relationship, do you find that it's the company that sometimes wants to continue a relationship with you and have you work one-on-one -on -one with their client, with their employees, or is it more the individual, you know, executive or, or you know, salesperson will reach out and say, hey, I want to I wanna do more? I would say early on. So when I first, uh, if I look back the years before versus now, I would say back in the quote unquote in the day, it was more um, the individuals mm -hmm. and then it transitioned. And it's, it's interesting that, and I never really have kind of analyzed this, but it's, it's interesting that I noticed that when the transition started taking place was when the, my price, my fee kept going up. So mm -hmm. in other words, what happened was the higher my fee got, the more it was the company saying, do you do any coaching? You know, mm -hmm. our executive staff or executive team, you know, could use coaching in the area of storytelling. Let's just say as an example, mm -hmm. if you do any executive coaching or any individual coaching. Whereas early on, whenever my fee level was lower and I was maybe working in different environments, it was more the individual approaching me. Mm -hmm. So, and I don't know the correlation as to why that happened. Like, is there a perception that, you know, if a person, because I mean, employees talk and stuff like that, but is there a perception that a company, let's say, well, we know how much the company paid to bring them in. And I know I could never pay that for a coach. So mm -hmm. maybe, maybe we can't, maybe he's somebody I couldn't afford. You know, like, in other words, it's almost like, um, 
to give a better comparison, but it's obviously a different world, but let's say Anthony Robbins, you know, you look at the level of Anthony Robbins, not many people go to a, uh, a seminar that Anthony Robbins put on if their company paid, say, $500,000 to bring Tony in and think, huh, maybe I'll hire Tony as a coach. Because <laughs> right. most people in the audience are going, I think that would be pretty cost prohibitive. And then you go to his website and you see the people he's coached are Andre Agassi and, and, mm-hmm. um, and you go down the list, right? Quincy Jones. And then you say, maybe I couldn't afford Tony as a coach. It's not <laughs> saying you can't, but I'm saying for some people, they're probably in the audience going, you know, I'm working at a, like for a corporation, I'm working a regular weekly job. I probably can't afford him. So maybe that happens. I don't know. Um, that's a total speculation. But yeah, the difference is when I first started, it was more the individual approaching. Uh, then after it became the company approaching. But I will say as a coach, if you're a coach, either way, either's good. Because if the individual's approaching, um, then you know they're there, you know they want to work hard, you know they're on board, you know you're going to be able to have a better chance for results. If the company's paying, you know you're going to get paid. Right. <laughs> so either way you slice <laughs> it, I don't think it's a bad thing. But yeah, that's, the, that's what I've noticed if I was being observational. The last thing that I want to ask you, because I know we're getting close to our time, is if you have any advice on coaches doing the TED Talks, because I, I know that you've done TED Talks, and honestly, I saw this maybe even a year or two years ago that it seemed like a lot of people were doing TED Talks, were sort of promoting the fact that they had done TED Talks. It was really a, a credibility or authority building thing. How do you, what do you feel about doing a TED Talk? Is that something that a coach should look into? Is that something that, that's a good thing for their business? So here, here's how I'll answer that. In terms of, so I'll use it from my perspective. My last well, well, my last TEDx talk, we'll use that as the example. What happened was, um, what not what happened, but what I seen as a result after it went out is whenever I send clients any kind of info. So for example, they say, send me over your media kit, send me this, send me that. What I've noticed is the one thing that they comment on more is I watched your TED talk and mm-hmm. so, and, and so, and, and I'll go into rooms with clients and they'll say, oh my God, I love TED talks. How'd you ever do that? So what I found is that there's a certain prestige and credibility that still exists within the TEDx world or TED world, either or, because it's pretty, it's pretty interchangeable. There's something that exists there that doesn't many other places. And Mm. so when you can say, check out my TED or TEDx talk, what I'm going to say to you is I haven't found a bad yet. There's no bad follow up to that. So, and what, and what I will say is from talking to clients, just one-on-one in conversations, it seems to be, there's more credibility today by uh, to, to having a TEDx talk than being seen on NBC or ABC or Good Morning America or insert big name here. I mean, I know people that put TEDx talks over being on the own network. So, well, you know, I, I guess so my answer would be uh, based on seeing that from my firsthand point of view, I would say that everybody, if they could, should have a world changing TED talk. That, that's my <laughs> honest opinion. But at the same time, I, I went a lot of years without having any. So, mm-hmm. and, and had success without having them. So you don't need them, but they're certainly never going to hurt you. Uh, what I will say is that I, uh, you know, I have, and I mean, you know, if they want to reach out to me, I can probably, if people listening want to reach out to me about this, I can probably send you the um, uh, videos that I've done on how to get them because that's a whole, literally, it's like a 45 minute conversation about how to get a TEDx talk, <laughs> how to steer one, because it's not as easy as people think and it's not as hard as people think. But mm-hmm. there's, if there's a certain system that I found that, increases your odds. There's no guarantees, but increases your odds. So yeah. So um, what I will say is they're beneficial to have. I, I, I did, I think two webinars and a couple of Facebook lives just on that subject. 
because I get asked the question all the time, how did you get your TEDx talk? And by the way, I guess I'll add in two when you ask about the importance of them. It's the most common question I probably get these days is how did you get your TEDx talks? So yeah, they're, they're valuable. And certainly a coach with a TEDx talk is going to stand out if they're, if a client's reaching out to them mm-hmm. over a person that has another talk that's not as, let's say, well-known. Corey, this has been so good. And I would love to finish up now with the final five rapid fire questions. Yeah, I'm ready. All right. What is one habit or skill that's helped you become unstoppable? Probably the biggest habit was, I'll say it's what I learned from these interviews that I've done. uh, And it's basically the habit of saying no Mm. to the wrong things a lot. So saying no a lot so that you can say yes to the right things less often. What's one quality that you think every successful coach needs to develop? I, I believe there's a great book that I'm, I'm reading right now, uh, rereading, and uh, I was on the show a week and a half, well, two weeks ago, I think it aired. Uh, it's called The One Thing, and mm-hmm. the book's obviously called The One Thing as well. And the book is basically talks about what's the one thing that you can do, as it, like, w- let's say your one task you can do that will knock down all the other dominoes. So, mm-hmm. you know, as it, I'll use the example of a TEDx talk. So maybe you do a TEDx talk and then speaking opportunities come in and then somebody says, do you want to write a book in your TEDx talk? So what's the one thing? So I would say the ability to always focus on what your one thing is that's going to make everything else work. Recommend one book that's had a big impact either on your business or on your life. Uh, so if I'm allowed, uh, I, since I mentioned one earlier, I'll just say how to win friends, obviously on the personal side, because it was uh-huh. the first book I ever read. So that mm-hmm. obviously had a big impact on my life. Uh, the big impact on my business would be the compound effect by Darren Hardy, which mm-hmm. basically teaches you how to do a whole bunch of small things, you know, do small things every day and keep doing them consistently. And eventually you'll be surprised at the big things that happen because of it. Finally, can you tell us how the listeners can best connect with you if they want to learn more about what you're doing, about the services you offer? How do they need to get in touch? Probably, you know, the best way, because then it's a win-win for that listener as well, is people can grab a copy of my latest book for the short term. I don't know how long it's going to last, but even whenever this is done, they can purchase a copy if they want. But right now, it's still free. Um, It's called uh, Why, simply the word Why. And the website's easy because it's thebookofwhy.com. So if you go to thebookofwhy.com and you use the word Why in lowercase, when it asks for a code, you'll get yourself a free book. You'll be joining our newsletter tribe, and it's a way to connect with me as well. Perfect. Well, I'll be sure to get all of those links and all of those recommendations onto the show notes page. Corey, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much. It's been my absolute pleasure. And also, thank you for all the, uh, the work you're doing to help coaches uh, at an important time in our, uh, our business world. Thanks for joining us on the Unstoppable Coach Podcast. Be sure to head over to the website at unstoppablecoach.co where you can grab the show notes and check out all the resources and the links to the guest website and social sites. And be sure you join us every weekday when I interview another successful coach and we learn their secrets to building an unstoppable coaching business.